good evening. Um, I'd like to welcome you to um, this Gresham College lecture, which is sadly, from my point of view, the last in this short series about the work of Powell and Pressburger, the worlds of Powell and Pressburger, as I've called it. I'm reminded of the fact that um, Michael Powell, in particular, used to address people who had become interested in Powell Pressburger's work uh, as archers. So I think you're all honorary archers tonight, having made it through the rain to get here. So what I've been trying to do in this series is to look at the partnership between Powell and Pressburger, which started um, just before the outbreak of World War II and reached its climax um, during, especially, and immediately after the war. But the theme is also um, the worlds that their films create, which I think are a really important reason for the continued appeal of these films. These are really very old films whose popularity has grown and grown over the years, especially since they've become available uh, in post-film formats, video, now silver discs of various kinds. And when I say worlds, I'm not just thinking of the literal settings of the films. As you know, uh, I'm sure many of you know, the films have got very interesting and uh, unusual settings. There's the, the um, settings for 49th Parallel, which we talked about in the first of these lectures. And there's the setting of the modern pilgrimage in, Canter in Kent, that leads to Canterbury for a Canterbury tale. These are the, the literal settings for the films. But there are also imagined settings, settings which were created um, entirely in the studio or by um, places masquerading as somewhere else, like the setting of uh, one of our aircraft is missing, which is set in occupied Holland, which of course it wasn't possible to film in when the film was being made. Or most spectacularly, the setting for Black Narcissus. Black Narcissus, as I'm sure many of you know, although it appears to be set on a precarious mountaintop uh, in Tibet, was actually filmed entirely in England uh, and very largely in the studio with an amazing combination of matte paintings and devices used to give us a real sense of atmosphere. And for many people, the, uh, the atmosphere of Black Narcissus is almost palpable, it, and of course it's way beyond anything you could achieve by actually filming on location uh, in its setting. But I think there's also another sense of worlds, and those are the what I would call the in-between worlds. Um, an increasing number of Powell and Pressburger's films, as they got into their stride during the 1940s, feature what we might call non-places or places that lie between identifiable worlds. One example of this would be when Clive Candy, the, uh, the blimp of life and death of Colonel Blimp, dives into the swimming pool in the Royal Bathers Club, disappears underwater and comes up miraculously in 1902. Or think about uh, the waiting room, the heavenly waiting room, through which dead airmen pass on their way to the great amphitheatre in a matter of life and death. I think this particular setting, the, the, uh, the waiting room with its Coca-Cola machine and its check-in 
to collect your wings is one of the most intriguing creations thematically and visually in, in all of Paul Pressburger's work. Or think of the world that Vicky dances into in the red shoes. When she enters into the ballet, we with her enter into an entirely phantasmagoric world that's created goes way beyond anything which can be achieved on the stage. So these are the in-between worlds, which are so, so important, I think, to giving the Archer's films their very particular atmosphere. Now, Emmerich Pressburger, who was certainly not given to theorizing about his work, he could only be persuaded to talk about his work uh, with, with some reluctance, when he was introducing a film, I think it was a Canterbury tale in New York during the period of rediscovery, he once spoke of trying to create what he called traps that might catch some magic. And that was about as theoretical as Emmerich ever got. He saw the structure of a film as a kind of scaffolding through which or in which some of the kind of magic that he and Powell were trying to create might get caught I think that's rather a good way of thinking about it because you create the structure but you really don't know whether it's going to incubate or create magic when you put it on screen. Michael Powell was much more willing to discuss his work. He once referred to himself as uh, a master of the mysteries and he was very conscious of the resources that were at his disposal as a filmmaker to, to add magic to the bare scaffolding of a script. I remember very vividly uh, the first time that I met him, which was in 1972. I went as a, a very nervous young person to meet this figure that I revered, but who was pretty unknown at the time in 1972. I went to meet him in his office uh, just off Piccadilly. I was trying to encourage him to talk about the, the fantastic dimension of his work. This is the period when we were very enthusiastic about Peeping Tom and about Tales of Hoffman. I was surprised when he referred me back to Rudyard Kipling and Kipling's sense of eeriness, which is present in many of the stories. And this was the story that Powell particularly mentioned, and he described the atmosphere. It's a kind of ghost story. It's a post-World War I ghost story. And people are driving through uh, southern England and they come across a, a house, and this evokes memories it's a wonderful story, and Michael said that he would love to have found a way of filming that. And that pointed me towards another source of this eeriness which pervades so many of their films. So what I want to explore in this lecture is how Powell and Pressburger managed to create complex, multi-layered worlds, often without apparently resorting to any elaborate artifice or even fantasy. And to do this, I'm going to follow the theme of islands, which runs right through their work, all the way from Spy in Black, the film that first brought them together, which is set on Orkney, as you may remember, to the very last film as The Archers, Ill Met by Moonlight, which is supposedly set on Crete, although it was actually shot in the south of France. Powell, in particular, had been fascinated by the Scottish islands from very early on in his career. And he explained this in a special introduction to the film Edge of the World, which he regarded as his first truly personal film. 
This came about in the late 70s when the rediscovery of Parliament Pressburger was getting underway. BBC Television volunteered to take Powell and surviving members of the cast to Fula, where they'd shot the film all those years ago. And Michael, of course, expanded this idea somewhat. And the actual uh, introduction to Edge of the World begins with him driving into Pinewood Studios in his uh, Land Rover, which was such an important part of his life. I'm going to watch the beginning of this when he explains how he reached Fula and Edge of the World. In 1921, yes, 57 years ago, when I was still at school, I read my first fan magazine. And in it, there was an article about movie making. I fell in love right away. This was for me. In 1931, I directed my first film. It was a thriller. That same year, I read in the newspaper about the population of St Kilda, a lonely island in the Scottish Hebrides. They'd asked to be taken off the island because the young people were all going away and there were no children at the village school. I thought one day I would make a film of this. One day. In 1936, I led an expedition to the island of Fula in the Shetland Islands to make the film. Where you go and take a walk with Ruth. And remember, it's the Sabbath. Behind me, Satan. Is she real to me? She is. Then I don't feel so bad about her, Uncle. You know, I've been feeling awful guilty. And all the time you've been stealing a march on me. Polly. Polly, my. I don't know whether I like it or not. Well, whether you do or whether you don't, she's going to be your sister-in-law. And tomorrow, Father will know it. When Parliament meets tomorrow, I'm going to speak out. You'll be awful angry. I'm not a child anymore. There are others who think like me. There's James Gray, for one. Andrew doesn't. Oh, Andrew. And what's wrong with Andrew? There's nothing much wrong with his nerve. There'll be a deal wrong with his neck if he doesn't take care. Andrew! Tell him to get down. Get down, you frightening roof! It was a sudden idea. It looked like it. In the old days, you had to show your courage to win a wife. So I said to myself, Andrew, my lad, you're as good as they are, and Ruth has got to be sure. The um, filming of Edge of the World turned out to be uh, 
you heard Michael talk about it being an ex leading an expedition to Fula. And of course, it was uh, an extraordinary uh, feat. And uh, if I just go back to that, Powell felt that it was an epic in its own way. And so he wrote a book about it. He did this with several films because, as he said, a book is a more permanent uh, record than a film. And indeed, during the period that he was making films, films, of course, could disappear very easily. They could be withdrawn, and you'd never see them again. We live in a world where films are omnipresent, or so it seems. But uh, Powell felt that a book uh, was uh, a way of really recording the fantastic achievement of pulling off this, this film, which, of course, was the film that got him introduced to Alexander Corder, and so eventually to Emmerich Pressburger. So for him, Edge of the World was an absolutely crucial moment in his career and his life. Uh, let's go past that. <laughs> um, I want to just enlarge on the question of Powell's relationship with Scotland, which was very special. Uh, there's no question that Scotland was where he felt most at home. When I say at home, it was a place that he went to um, to seek, what, some kind of escape from metropolitan southern England. Of course, he remained very close to his roots in Kent, as you, you see in the Canterbury Tale. But for, Scotland, for him, Scotland was something very special indeed. And thanks to Criterion adding this as an extra to their version of I Know Where I'm Going, we've got um, a little anthology of some of Michael Powell's home movies. He shot a lot of film over the years, not all of which has been seen, but it is archived. And this is a little selection made under the supervision of his wife, Thelma Schoonmaker, to which she's added a commentary, which I think tells you a lot in a short space about uh, Michael's relationship to Scotland. These two men are very typical of what are called Highland stalkers, men who live on the hill, either protecting the sheep or leading parties uh, who are hunting deer. And obviously one of the party is now taking a rare photograph of Michael in his own home movies, because since he takes them all the time, you hardly ever see him. This is Bill Payton, a Shetlander who he met on the edge of the world. And this is Seton Gordon, uh, the great naturalist, whose books first got Michael interested in Scotland and actually got him interested in making Edge of the World. This is Michael's dog Sweep, about whom we will hear later. And this is Alistair Dunnett, the editor of The Scotsman. I think they're all feeling pretty fine. Perhaps I've had a few whiskeys. Michael always said whiskey tasted the best on the hill. These beautiful atmospheric shots of Scotland are, are very reminiscent of what you see in I Know Where I'm Going. Of course, they are in black and white there. But Michael captured as often as he could the feeling of being on the hill in that film. This is a cairn, a stack of stones, which I think were sometimes burial sites and often just markers. The party has not gotten to the top of Benmore Coigach yet. They're, they're just part of the way up. Alistair Dunnett, by the way, gave a eulogy at uh, Michael Powell's memorial service. Martin Scorsese was the other who spoke. And Alistair spoke at the end of uh, his speech about putting a stone on the top of the cairn of a beloved friend. It was a very moving speech. I'll never forget it. 
So here I think you get a, a real sense of what Scotland meant to Michael. It's certainly not metropolitan Scotland, it's being out in Wester Ross here and in, in remote places in Scotland. And he would indeed jump on a train at every opportunity and head north um, and uh, would stride across the moors, uh, as you see here in, in this extract. In 1945, Michael Powell's established love of Scotland came together with Emmerich Pressburger's imagination, filmic imagination, in what is probably the most unexpected film of their entire collaboration, I Know Where I'm Going, which is always known amongst archers as Ickwig. Shorter than saying, I know where I'm going. Easier to write. The important thing about Ickwig is that it wasn't made to fit any propaganda goal. You've got to remember that during the war, from 49th parallel onwards, Powell and Pressburger had been very much working to a set of imperatives. They were responding very often to urging and suggestion coming from the Ministry of Information. Jack Beddington in particular, the head of the films division, uh, was um, a very sympathetic figure who would have a chat with them, who would meet up for dinner or for lunch and talk through some of the issues of the day. And out of those talks came films like The Canterbury Tale, uh, which is really about people being displaced from their familiar settings during the war, or indeed ultimately a film like A Matter of Life and Death which of course was made to deal with the dilemma facing Britain in the post-war world. But the problem with the matter of life and death, which they'd agreed they were going to make, was that it had to be in color. The scheme of a matter of life and death, which is known as Amalad, was that it should be earth in color and heaven in black and white, pearly black and white. And there was no technicolor stock available at this point in 1945. Bringing essential supplies across the Atlantic was obviously a high priority, and Technicolor was not a high priority at this stage. So Powell and Pressburger were faced with an unexpected dilemma. They needed to make a film. Their contracts, their understanding with Arthur Rank through independent producers meant that they were due to start shooting a new film. They didn't have a script. They knew they were going to make A Matter of Life and Death, but it would have to wait until Technicolor stock was available. So they had to come up with something quickly. And that, of course, was a very interesting situation. We know that the idea for I Know Where I'm Going was spontaneous for Emmerich Pressburger. It just burst out. You couldn't hold it back, was what he said. And unexpectedly, we've actually got some of the very first notes he made about the film. There are very few documents that I'm aware of from Emmerich Pressburger's archive. But this is one, and I think you can probably read it. Uh, I hope you can read it. Um, it's in his handwriting. It's uh, a foggy night, and um, he imagines a woman who has come to get to an island, but she can't get there. Something has held her back. Now, it's like a dream image, and I think it might well have been effectively a dream. It's very unspecific. 
but it's just a, it's a compelling image, a woman who has arrived, who wants to get to an island, but is prevented by something. It may be significant, I'm sure it is significant, that Emmerich had got married relatively recently, and he and his wife had a daughter, Angela. And this is one of the, I think, very rare photographs of Emmerich at a children's matinee, I believe, with his daughter, Angela. So he was thinking about children, and perhaps specifically about a daughter. I mean, we might think, for instance, about, you know, Yeats's poem for his daughter. And for, I think, one way of thinking about I Know Where I'm Going is to see it as Emmerich projecting himself into the future of a young woman who has been born at the end of the war and whose life lies in front of her. Of course, the figure that he and Michael created, Joan, is much more grown up than that, but we see her in the opening credits of the film, the very opening sequence, as I'm sure many of you already know, um, quickly jumping through the early stages of her life, always knowing where she's going. The idea for the film at this point was known as the Misty Island, not perhaps a very catchy title, but that's a working title. A girl wants to get to an island, but is prevented by a storm. And when it becomes possible for her to go, she no longer wants to go. That's the germ of the film. And I described it as a kind of dream image, and we could relate it to a kind of history of very similar dreamlike images in film. The one that occurs to me, and it's occurred to many other people too, Pam Cook, in her book about I Know Where I'm Going, specifically mentions Murnau's great film Sunrise. This is one of the very greatest uh, late silent films, a film that was made just at the, on the cusp at the edge of the silent period with a, a synchronized music track. It's a film about a countryman, apparently happy with his wife, but he falls under the spell of a, a wicked woman from the city who has come on holiday. And under her influence, he decides that he's going to murder his wife. So they set off across a lake, but when he comes to it, of course, he can't do it. His wife understands that he's been under tremendous emotional pressure. They come to land. There's an extended reconciliation as they enjoy the pleasures of the city. And then they head back towards their farm, their simple life. But during the return journey, uh, a storm means that his wife appears to have been drowned. And so maybe it's come true after all. And this is an image from that, that part of the, the last part of the film. Now, interestingly, Sunrise was written by Karl Meyer, one of the very greatest screenwriters of the silent period, who was a friend of Emmerich Pressburger's. Emmerich only began to write films at the end of the silent period. He begins with the beginning of the talkies in Germany. Karl Meyer, by this time, was a refugee and had come to Britain. And I can imagine that they must have talked, they would have talked, of course, about the construction of screenplays because after all, Karl Meyer was one of the most important screenwriters in the world, and Emmerich increasingly saw himself as a specialist in writing for the screen. So I think of Sunrise as lying in the hinterland behind I Know Where I'm Going. It's got that massive simplicity which um, Ickwig so successfully recaptures. But in 1945, as they were planning the film at high speed, 
under pressure to get it uh, set up, the film needed a story, which uh, Pressburger starts to develop. One foggy night, a man and a woman meet in the only hotel of a small port. He is a naval officer. She is a young architect. He's come to spend a week's leave on the island. She has come to marry a famous architect who rents the island. So the basic geometry, the basic structure, is indeed what survives into the film as we know it. Uh, what Emmerich Pressburger starts to do next is he starts to sketch a plot. Someone has lost his way in the fog and is calling for help. The two meet. And then he ends with a, an interesting phrase, the lost man is the best man. <laughs> you can imagine Emmerich with a non-English native's interest in wordplay being struck by that phrase, the lost man is the best man. Uh, the meaning that the, the man who was lost in the fog is supposed to be the best man in the forthcoming wedding. So he plays with that idea uh, in this story that began to be developed. Now at this point, it's not specific to Scotland. It's not specific to Mole. We don't know exactly when that setting was decided, but I'm pretty sure that Michael Powell would have um, been the main figure advocating this is where it should be set. And he would have started to react, which this is the way they put films together. He would have reacted to Pressburger's initial premise. And he would introduce another imaginary Scottish island, Killoran, the island that's supposed to lie off Mull, which is supposed to be the setting for the wedding. And he provides a backstory for young Joan's journey to the island to marry a rich industrialist. She has doubts about this, despite knowing where she's going, despite being very self-confident, very professional, somewhat careerist, we think, from the early scenes we see with her. Her doubts surface in a, a dream, an ironic dream. There are relatively few outright dream sequences or fantasy sequences in Powell and Pressburger's films. And when they, they do occur, they're wonderful. And they're very, very purposeful and meaningful. So as Joan travels north in the sleeper, heading towards the Western Isles, her dream has two important elements. One is she imagines the wedding and the minister who looks rather like her father, is shouting up to the smokestacks of this great industry, do you take to be your wedded, etc., etc. So is she marrying a man or an industry? That's one avenue of doubt. The other avenue of doubt, of course, is what is she, where does she think she's going? She's going to Scotland. What does she know of Scotland? Not very much, we think. And this is parodied uh, in this wonderful image of a, a toy train making its way through Tartan Hills. If you like, a, an English person's imaginary for Scotland. It's also been suggested, and I think this may be true, that um, this particular sequence of the train heading north with uh, commentary accompanying it might be a sort of parody of a very famous British documentary film, Night Mail, a film which has the train speeding north with W.H. Uh, Auden's poetry on the soundtrack. Michael Powell didn't have a very high regard for documentary filmmaking. I think he thought it was a bit of a cop-out. And it may well be that this is you know, a bit of a, a send-up 
of Nightmare, which had become a, a sort of classic of British cinema in the 1930s. Now, I can't discuss the film in any detail here, and that's not my purpose. I don't want to forestall the screening of it uh, later this evening. But I just want to point out how well it serves both avenues of inspiration, if you like. Um, we've got the, um, the fabled Hebrides caught in these amazing images shot on the island of Mull. This is one of the most striking of those images. Joan arrives at night, uh, doesn't know where to go. Uh, her, her arrangements haven't worked out. What is she to do? And in, in images like this, we have a, a sense of Mull which is uh, almost unreal. It's so vivid, so sharp. And I think the Scottish tourist industry has been very grateful to I Know Where I'm Going because countless people have gone to Mull drawn by the images they see in this film. But there are two aspects. We've seen there are two kind of elements that made up the inspiration of the film. One is Pressburger's concept of the woman who arrives believing she knows what she's going to do and then changes her mind or loses the will to want to go to the island, which is what her destiny uh, appears to be to get married to a rich industrialist. And that sense of being lost in um, an unfamiliar society where the codes are different, people speak in a strange but rather poetic way, and you don't quite know where you are, that pervades the whole film. Joan is a fish out of water. There's another side to it too, which is Michael Powell's intensely romantic sense of what the Highlands, what the Scottish Highlands stood for. And that's expressed in uh, the woman who takes Joan in, Catriona, who is seen in this absolutely astonishing image. She's out with her dogs. She's like a sort of huntress Diana. It's a really mythological image. Michael was very closely involved romantically with, with uh, the actress uh, who played uh, Catriona. Pamela Brown, and um, apparently he shot an enormous amount of footage in this vein, which Emmerich Pressburger ruthlessly cut out. Um, they didn't, they were a very interesting partnership because they were a check and a balance on each other. Michael could add things that Emmerich perhaps disapproved of. Emmerich could insist that things that Michael wanted to include in the film didn't really fit the shape, the structure of the film. It was a, a wonderful to-and-fro partnership, and here we have a very good example of it, I think. And, of course, there are wonderfully eccentric things which Michael would definitely have introduced, like Captain, uh, Captain Barnstable, the eccentric eagle trainer, who really gets, strikes a very you know, strange note in the film, but uh, wonderfully authentic. So, like the heroine of a romance, Joan, a materialistic figure, as we see here at the beginning of the film, falls under the spell of the island where money has little meaning and she discovers her true destiny with Torquil, releasing him in the process from an ancestral curse. So this is where the mythological dimension of the film really expands. Now, after the war, Powell and Pressburger would venture further into this new landscape and it's a landscape that's been described as neo-romantic, Neo-romanticism is a, a movement among poets and painters 
and some filmmakers, which emerged during the 1940s, and it really flourishes in the later 1940s after the war. And Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburg have been conscripted into this sense of a new romanticism in English art. And I think I Know Where I'm Going very much belongs to that, perhaps helps to inaugurate it uh, in, in 1945. But um, it's even more apparent in the three films that they make uh, afterwards, the three, immediate, three of the immediate post-war films, in Black Narcissus, which is a tragic love story, uh, tragic in several senses, in The Red Shoes, which of course is another tragic love story, and in Gone to Earth, uh, one of the later films they made at the end of the 1940s based on Mary Webb's novel, which they managed to transform into something really um, utterly neo-romantic with its feeling for the Shropshire landscape. Taken together, these represent, I think, Paul and Pressburger's great contribution to neo-romanticism, and that's beginning to be recognized as art historians, cultural historians get interested in the movement. But I want to end, move towards the end of this, this particular talk by discussing one of the films that was for a very long time underestimated, but increasingly it seems quite central to understanding what we might call the Archer's philosophy of art. And this film is The Tales of Hoffman. It's the screen version of what was Offenbach's last opera. Uh, Offenbach, of course, is well known for his, his um, light operas, his operettas. At the end of his life, he wanted to create something more serious. And he was working on Tales of Hoffman in his final months. He never actually saw the Tales of Hoffman performed, although some parts of it were performed when he was on his deathbed. It's got a, a complicated underpinning. Uh, each of the three acts of the opera is uh, based on a story by E.T.A. Hoffman, the great German romantic uh, writer, conjurer of the fantastic in his stories like The Sandman. Uh, a, a writer who fascinated Freud, some of Freud's best writing about the uncanny and the grotesque is directed at stories by E.T.A. Hoffman. In the opera, the conceit of the opera is that Hoffman himself is the central figure, and he's a poet, and what he's telling is the story of the three loves he lost to an audience in a tavern. The three loves that he's lost include Giulietta, a Venetian courtesan, and Olympia, Olympia, who appears to be um, a woman of, of enormous grace and beauty, but turns out to be an automaton. She's a clockwork doll. And here we see um, Moira Shearer dancing Olympia, surrounded by, well, um, essentially uh, a cast of actors, because this was a film which was made by pre-recording the soundtrack and then matching the action, mainly by dancers, to the pre-recorded soundtrack. The third act is the least well-known of the three acts, and in fact it was cut from the film for a considerable period of time. Alexander Corder, who was involved in the production of the film, advised Powell and Pressburger that if they took the third act out, they would win a prize in Cannes. So the film was actually premiered with only two of its acts present, and it took some time to restore the third act. 
The third act is set on a Greek island. Well, let me, before I touch on that, let me just say that Tales of Hoffman has a kind of interesting reputation as a film which inspired many, many filmmakers in the early 1950s. Uh, two of the most famous filmmakers that were directly inspired by it and spoke, have spoken with great, great enthusiasm were Martin Scorsese, and here's a, a young Scorsese with, with a young De Niro. Scorsese remembers vividly seeing Tales of Hoffman on television. His parents had got a television, black and white, of course. The film was shown endlessly, as films were in those days, and he knew every frame of Tales of Hoffman, and he will still recount how it gave him his sense of poetic movement on the screen, particularly this, this scene, which comes at the end of the Venetian episode. The other, perhaps surprising filmmaker who was deeply influenced by Tales of Hoffman was George Romero. George Romero, who is best known, of course, for creating Night of the Living Dead and for unleashing zombies uh, in increasing numbers, increasingly lurid zombies across his career. Romero turns out to have been deeply influenced by Tales of Hoffman and actually speaks about it on uh, a Criterion edition of the film. So here we have these two very different filmmakers who saw it on television and it left an indelible impression on them. I think essentially because of its stylization. At a time of ultra-naturalism in film, this highly stylized film really made an impression on young filmmakers who wanted to do something different. So we come to the third act, the least known act of Tales of Hoffman. And what's really striking about the way the act is introduced is it's introduced by a very famous painting. The painting is The, the Isle of the Dead uh, by Arnold Böcklin, the Swiss uh, symbolist, late symbolist painter. What I realized when I got interested in the film and started to think about this was that there isn't just one painting, The Isle of the Dead, as you might think. There are many versions of it. I think there are a total of five different versions that Berklin painted because it was hugely popular, successful, and rich collectors wanted to have their own version. So Berklin obliged. And here are just three of the variant versions. That middle one, I think, is known as the Hermitage version. It, it lives in the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg. But there are at least, as I say, five different versions of the painting. Now, what's interesting here, I think, is that um, it must have been Hein Heckroth who came up with the idea of making this the motif for this third act. The scenario is that Antonia is an opera singer. She is ill with consumption. She's been forbidden to sing on pain of death. If she sings, it'll kill her. Hoffman is in love with her. And Hoffman, of course, would like her to sing. And she would like to sing for Hoffman. And there are two evil figures in the background. There is um, the evil doctor, the figure who frustrates Hoffman at every turn through the three stories. And there is her father, who is a conductor, who is trying to prevent her from following in her mother's footsteps and singing. But the visual motif of this third act is a version, yet another version, of Berklin's Isle of the Dead, which of course is highly appropriate. And here's Hein Heckroth 
tremendously important figure in the, Artners, in, in the Archers' partnership, particularly from the Red Shoes onwards, because the Red Shoes is where he takes control of the complete design of the film at Powell's invitation and does the whole thing, the production design, the costumes, and a very painterly approach to the composition of the image. Here's Heckroth at work. He, it must have been he, I think, who proposed the Isle of the Dead as the, the visual motif. And of course, it's a mysterious image. What does it mean? Birklin never revealed his inspiration. He referred to it as a dream picture, which is certainly what it has become. There are many different versions of it in graphic art, in comic strips, in computer games, in virtual reality. It's an image that echoes down the decades. And I think we can imagine Powell and Pressburger seeing it as an ideal setting for this eerily tragic story of Antonia refusing to stay silent and so, so bringing about her death by singing. Although, in fact, the film ends without that actually happening on screen with a, a trio where she sings with the ghost of her dead mother and the evil Dr. Miracle. Michael Powell used to half-jokingly use the phrase about the red shoes that it was about dying for art. Well, where more appropriate to do this than on the Isle of the Dead? Let me show you the beginning of this act.
the trunk that uh, Antonia goes to contains the relics of her mother, uh, who was a, a famous singer. And she's, of course, inspired by the memory of her mother. Tales of Hoffman, I think, has become such an important film for people interested in the Paul Pressburger uh, canon because it's, uh, it's a film, it's an opera, and it's a film which really deals with the relationship between art and life. Hoffman, the central figure, has been disappointed in his, his uh, loves. Three women have not responded to his admiration for them. The woman he's really in love with, Stella, who passes through the film briefly, um, is not, uh, has no time for him, essentially. So it's about disillusion, but it's also about how art can compensate for despair and disillusion. It's a, a romantic work, but it's a work of late romanticism. And I think as people have thought about the film and come to know it better and better, it seems to really sum up an important part of the, the neo-romantic philosophy running through Powell and Pressburger's films, particularly in the 1940s. The film was made in 1951 as a slightly ironic contribution to the Festival of Britain. The film actually ends with Thomas Beecham, who'd suggested the idea, closing the score, putting down his baton, and the stamp comes down saying, made in Britain. <laughs> it adds extra irony in the present circumstances that we find ourselves. So. What I've tried to do in this lecture, and my time is running out, as it does in Tales of Hoffman, is to um, trace a path through Powell and Pressburger's work, not in relation to the production history of their films, which I talked about in earlier lectures, or in the contextual history of the 1940s, because so many of their films do relate to what was happening during the war and in the wider world uh, of the 1940s. But instead, what I've tried to do is to follow this motif of islands, which I think, I hope you'll agree, does run through their work. And of course, islands have their own legacy of associations. They're much discussed in the literature of psychoanalysis. And I've given you some reading in the uh, handout, which, which includes the text of this lecture. And of course, in cultural geography. The whole idea of the island is something which has tremendous resonance for many people in, in different contexts. We've seen how important Scottish islands in particular were for Michael Powell. And how in this particular case, if I know where I'm going, the dreamlike image of a woman standing on the side of a dock trying to reach an island was the starting point for one of their most romantically charged films. And it's also worth perhaps adding here that one of Michael Powell's most cherished projects at the end of his life was a film which he hoped would be the climax in many ways of his post-Archer's career. It's a film which went through many changes of title. Essentially, it's a version of Shakespeare's The Tempest. Michael worked on it for many years. In this particular version of it, it's called The Magic Island. And here you see in this presentation when he's got James Mason fully on board after Age of Consent, Mason has agreed to play Prospero. 
in Powell's film. You can see here the three sort of tenets of the film. Except for this, the opening and closing sequences, it is planned as a studio production with non-realistic settings, just like Tales of Hoffman had been. The decor of the island, inspired by Hieronymus Bosch, designed by Gerald Scarf, includes colorful and spectacular studio sets, as well as fantastic monsters, birds, animals, and vegetation. Just imagine the combination of Hieronymus Bosch and Gerald Scarf. Uh, those of you who know Scarf's wonderful work, I, I ran into G Gerald Scarf at the Victorian Albert Museum uh, some months ago, and I went up to him and said, do you remember working with Michael Powell on The Magic Island? He said, yes. I said, have you still got the designs? Yes. So we know that this, this stayed on in Gerald Scarf's memory as a, an important might have been. But the money was never forthcoming. And despite the efforts of Frixos Constantine, who was Michael's producer at this point, trying to raise money for what would have been a very unexpected, imaginative, unpredictable version of The Tempest, the money never materialized. When Derek Jarman, who was a great admirer of Michael Powell's work, made his version of The Tempest, he said that he, he felt he was making it, as it were, for Michael Powell. Powell had not been able to make his Tempest, but what Jarman could do was to make a very different version of it uh, in his way. So Islands Yet Again, one of Michael's last projects, would have been the Magic Island, and he poured so much energy and imagination into that, trying to get it off the ground in the 1970s. What I'm trying to say, have been trying to say in this series of, of lectures, is that we need to remember that films are not just stories about characters. They're moving pictures that create places. And these places can seem more real, more familiar, than actual places that we inhabit and can visit. And there's nowhere better to see this than in I Know Where I'm Going. I, I Know Where I'm Going was partially shot in Mull, but much of it was shot in the studio. And you can go to some of the buildings, settings that appear in the film, and many of them are unchanged. It's a great pleasure as you come around the corner and you see something that's exactly like it is in the film, except in color. Um, but what we have to remember, and you can't help but remember this when you know the film, is that the mull that we see on screen is a, an imagined constructed, filmic mull. When we see Joan and her real, the real object of her love and admiration at the end of the film, in fact, they're not on mull at all. They're against studio backdrops with stand-ins being used. We don't need to know that. It's unimportant. The power of the film is sufficient to convince us that we're in a highly romantic version of Mull, and that the, the curse is being lifted from Torquil, ancestral curse that we've heard. As I said before, vi countless visitors make their way to the island, and there are even two or three films made about visiting Mull as a sort of pilgrimage to see the setting for I Know Where I'm Going. Heckroth, Hein Heckroth, the um, 
artist most responsible for the visual appearance of their later work once referred to film as the folklore of the 20th century. This was a phrase that Michael Powell loved. He quotes it in his memoir with, uh, with great approval. But I think we can go a little bit further than that. I think we can say that not just the folklore of the 20th century, but actually the art form of the 20th century. Because what film does, of course, is to weave together high art and low art and creates a new culture of immediacy and community. If we know and love the Archer's films, we feel part of a community that shares some of their values, that recognizes their characters, that understands what's going on behind the stories and the images. And I think that continues to resonate for successive generations. And I just want to end with an image to whet your appetite of something that is still forthcoming. This is one of the last films that Michael Powell made fully under his control. It's um, a version of the great opera by Bela Bartok, Bluebeard's Castle. He was invited to make it by Hein Heckroth. Heckroth was working back in Germany and had the possibility of bringing together a production for television. He invited Michael to come and direct it. And in the second volume of Michael's memoirs, Million Dollar Movie. It's a wonderful account of the weeks they spent in this small studio making this film, using the same technique that they'd used in Tales of Hoffman. Pre-recorded score, recorded in Zagreb, two wonderful soloists, Norman Foster and Anna Raquel Sartre, and then shooting the film with Heckroth creating fabulous, a fabulous world for the claustrophobic setting of the film, of the opera. I've written a, an essay which I suggest that if we go all the way through from Red Shoes to Tales of Hoffman to Bluebeard's Castle, what we see is Michael Powell working out the logic of a completely composed artwork which uses all the resources of opera, dance, the visual arts, and film, fusing them into something quite magical. And I say in that uh, piece, in that essay, that Richard Wagner wrote a very famous essay called The Artwork of the Future, in which Wagner looked forward to something that would be beyond what opera was in the late 19th century. And I think, to some extent, that's what Powell and Pressburger created in these later films. Of course, they wouldn't have spoken in those terms. They were very down-to-earth. They could be quite uh, deflationary if you tried to, to pin something on them. But I think, really, we can say with the benefit of hindsight, that they did create the artwork of the future. Thank you. <laughs>